I want to begin with a quote from what I believe is the greatest cinematic masterpiece of all time, The Princess Bride. Anybody else? All right, so in The Princess Bride, there's this character named Vizzini, and Vizzini, anytime something happens, he says what word? Does anybody remember? Inconceivable. Inconceivable. Everything is inconceivable. And then at one point, uh, one of his swashbuckling stooge, Inigo Montoya, says to him, you keep using that word. I don't think it means, oh, what do you think it means? And I think sometimes we do that. We use words and we don't really know what they mean. We just throw them around. And we're seeing this so much in some of this conversation about Israel. Uh, we see this in our lives when people just throw around terms that they really don't know what they're using. One of the words I think we throw around in church a lot that we really don't understand is the word worship. We don't understand worship. In the Bible, worship is not church. It's not a church service. It's not a liturgy or a sermon. The word wor worship really has nothing to do with music. It's not a choir, a bell choir. It's not a style of music. If you tried to talk to somebody who wrote the Bible about worship style, they would have no idea what you were talking about. That's just not their understanding of what worship is. Now, some of those things relate to worship, and I want to try to help you understand that. But I just think when we're throwing around the word worship a lot, I want to say to you today, you keep using that word, and I don't think it means, so what do you think it means? So what does worship mean? And to help you understand that, I want to give you five words that sort of help you understand what true biblical worship is. I'm going to sort of do a timeline of how worship develops in the Bible using these five words. And I'm going to treat it like an archway because they're sort of in parallel. And that'll make sense to you and, but, uh, as I go. But, but so today, though, I was thinking about making an archway and how do I make sort of this arch. And then I realized we have one, right? There's a big one in the middle of the sanctuary, and um, it actually works really well as an archway. So I want you to imagine that this is an archway, and we're going to actually put the words on it. So I'm asking the gentlemen in the back row of the choir. They are ready to go to help you understand what worship is all about. Our first word, going on the bottom left here, is the word service. Service. In Hebrew, the word that is almost often translated as worship is this word, service. There we go. Okay, in the ancient world, people actually served the gods. You had these people called priests, and it was their job to serve the gods. Literally, they would take care of the gods. They would find these places that were high places close to the gods, and your goal was, as a priest... To attend to the gods. So the gods are hungry. What do we do? We sacrifice. We feed them. We give them grain offerings. We give them food offerings. Okay? We want to keep them happy. So we bring aromas to them. Okay? We set up a temple for them. And part of our job is to clean their house. Because all gods are happy if their house is clean. Okay? The idea is service. The idea is that you served the gods. You attended to the gods. You kept the gods happy. That was the ancient understanding of worship all the way through. Okay, that you served the gods. You took care of and appeased the gods. This means that worship is never, in the, is, it's not understood as a noun, it's a verb. It's something that you do. The Hebrew word is actually the same word, uh, based on the same word for work. You worked for the gods. You served the gods. 
And that's what Israel's worship was about too. You served God. Here is uh, Micah 6, 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself to God on high? Shall I come with him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for my sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. So here's Micah's argument. How do we keep our God happy? It's not, it's not bulls, right? It's not oils, not land, it's not sacrifices. God doesn't want all your sacrifices. All the, 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 the bulls on a thousand hills are his. Like he owns the whole world. He doesn't need your sacrifice. He doesn't need your, what he wants is your service. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly. How do we keep this God happy? How do we serve this God? By living our lives differently. That's what Micah is saying. But his understanding of worship fits perfectly in line with what everybody else believed about to what, to what does it mean to worship? It means to serve God. But how do you serve this God? You serve this God with actions. Okay? Let me pause there. That means really importantly that when we come to worship together, it's not really about you. It's not really about me. We're not here to sacrifice to each other. We're here to sacrifice to God. God is the focus of worship. God gets the praise. God gets the honor. God gets the sacrifice that he deserves. That's what worship truly is. This leads us to our second word. The word is presence. I told these guys if they fall off the chair, the sermon's kind of over. So, okay. <laughs> presence. God's presence. See, in the ancient world, they believed that the gods could be all over the place. So you just went to a high place to try to be close to the gods so that maybe they would hear you and maybe they would smell your offerings and maybe you would appease them. But Israel had a different understanding of God. They believed that God was really present. All these ancient people, to make sure we were representing the right God, they would go over here and they would build idols. They'd build statues of their God just so that it was clear what God we were talking to. Israel had a different understanding. They had an understanding that God was actually present with the people. There's a really neat picture of this in the Bible. It's called the Tent of Meeting. The Tent of Meeting. Before there was a tabernacle, which was the predecessor to the temple, Moses had a tent that was outside of the camp. And let me read, it, read about it in Exodus 33, starting in verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent... And pitch it outside of the camp, far off from the camp. It was called the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up. And each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. Then, when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his own tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to a friend. 
When Moses turned again to the camp, his assistant Joshua of Nun, a young man, would not depart from that tent. So there's this tent of meeting, this place where Moses would go to actually talk to God. And they believed in this pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. God's presence was actually with them, leading them and in their midst. So much so that when Moses went to the tent and the cloud went there, everybody stood and, and was reverent to God's presence. Then something interesting happens. It actually talk, it's talked about earlier in Exodus, but doesn't happen until later. That eventually the Lord had said to Moses, speak to the people. This is Exodus 25. Speak to the people that they take for me a contribution. For every man whose heart moves him shall receive the contribution for me. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I have shown you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle, all its furniture, so you will make it. So actually, the tabernacle is sometimes called the tent of meeting. It's actually sometimes called in the text, the tent of meeting. So Moses used to go out and meet God at this tent. But what actually happens then is the tabernacle gets built in the middle of camp. And that becomes the tent of meeting. So here's their belief. Their belief is God is actually present with us. We, and that's why they don't build idols. That's why God says, do not build any idols to me. Because I don't need any fake gods. I don't need any like statues of me so you know oh, I'm actually with you. Go worship me. This idea of God's presence in worship. And that what worship becomes is not just my sacrifice, my service to God, but drawing close to God's presence. That's such an important part of worship. That I go and I sacrifice, but then I am near to God. So worship is about serving God. Worship is about drawing close to God's presence, about meeting God. This tent of meeting. Tent of meeting becomes the tabernacle. Tent of meeting becomes the temple. Tent of meeting becomes the church. That we go to meet God in the place. This leads us to the capstone, the top of our arch. The keystone, it's called. Normally, it's, it's kind of shaped, and it's what holds an archway together. None of the choir members can reach up top, but I've got good news for you. That already, there's a Cairo there. Do you ever see that symbol? It's a Cairo. It's a key and a row. And uh, that is the first two letters of the name Christ, the term Christ. Christ is the keystone of our arch. Okay, why? Because when Jesus comes along, Okay, worship has been service, worship hasn't been presence. But when Jesus comes along, Christian worship becomes something a little different. It gets focused. It gets focused not just on God generally, but on Jesus particularly. Why? Because he comes along and does the things that humanity is not able to do. Okay, and in fact, the, the New Testament, we could take a long time to spell this out. The New Testament makes a big deal out of this, that Jesus is the temple. That Jesus is the sacrifice made for everybody. He's the lamb. Jesus is so much the presence of God in our midst, like the, like the presence of the tent of meeting, that Jesus says, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's how, that's how much Jesus says, I am now the presence in your midst. So here's what happens in Christian worship. Christian worship gets focused and centered on Jesus, the keystone. It's still about service. It's still about presence. But it's about the presence of Jesus, and it's about service to Jesus. You can find this all over the Gospels, in fact, 
when people praise Jesus. In Matthew 9, just for example. End of Matthew 9, there's this man who's been blind his whole life, blind from birth. And Jesus heals him. The people question him. The Jewish authority question him. And then he goes back and Jesus finds him. And then Jesus tells him that his sins are forgiven. Here's what, here's what he says. Jesus heard that the man had cast him out and having found him said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answers, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. This happens actually a lot in the, new, in the Gospels. That somebody figures out who Jesus is, and they actually worship him. And the Greek word for worship is to bow down. It literally just means bow down. So, so they, they, they bowed down. They gave their service and their honor and their praise to Jesus. And, and you need to note in the Gospels, this happens to Jesus multiple times. He never stops somebody. He's never like, no, nah, I'm just a man. Don't worship me. He allows people to worship him because he's worthy of the worship. So in, in, G, in, in Christian worship, then, Jesus is the center. Jesus is the center of our lives. He's the center of all of our sacrificing and our, our understanding of God's presence. But then it gets really interesting in the New Testament. Okay, it gets really interesting because something changes after Jesus. And that leads us to our next word up there. Ready? Spirit. Spirit. Something changes. God sends his Holy Spirit. Now, I want to tell you, the Holy Spirit is in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit is throughout the, New Te- throughout the Gospels. Okay, he uh, comes and sees Mary, and uh, that's part of uh, the Christmas story. The Spirit is part of leading Jesus out in the wilderness. I mean, he does, the Spirit does a lot of stuff. But what happens at Pentecost is that the Spirit comes, Jesus sends his Spirit to live where? In us. In us. There's this huge transformation. This huge thing that happens. Here's how Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 6. Paul is talking about what Christians can and can't do with their body. Okay, so it's a large discussion. But in verse 19, he starts into this. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, and you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So here's the shift. Whereas Israel talked about service and God's presence in a particular location. After Jesus, something really dramatic changes where the Holy Spirit dwells in us. We are now the temple. The presence of God is still very real. But whereas it used to come and go, it used to be on someone and then not on someone and lead someone. And the the Holy Spirit is actually in you, in the temple. You're the temple. So for Christian worship, that means a lot of times uh, I don't have to always come to church together. Although here's what the Christians also understood. Not only is the Holy Spirit within me, the Holy Spirit is within you. And so if the Holy Spirit is within you, then I ought to listen to you. Because the Holy Spirit may tell you something. The Holy Spirit's not telling me something. Right? So you can't just be by yourself a temple alone. The Holy Spirit is in each of us. We are the temple. Maybe to give you a bonus word, are we ready on the red word there? We got a little bonus word to help clarify how these are connected. But what we're talking about when we talk about spirit is we're talking about personal presence. 
right? This idea that back before it used to be that God was present in the temple. He was present at the sacrifice. Now he is present in you and in me. So worship becomes about us understanding what the spirit is doing in us. So when the early church used to meet, they would gather in in rooms and table around tables. They would have meals together because they wanted to hear the Holy Spirit speaking to you and the Holy Spirit speaking to me. Now, over time, the church started to develop into more structure. And they said, well, okay, we we can worship and we want to sacrifice. But but it is helpful to have some packaging around that to help us worship, to help give us words. That leads us to ritual. Okay, ritual. The church understood that they needed ritual. Here's the earliest understanding that we have of Christian ritual. In Acts 2.42, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. So they'd get together and they'd eat. I'm convinced the early church was Presbyterian. We've got to eat. We're getting together, right? <coughs> to the teachings of the, of the apostles, to gathering together, and to prayer. By the way, it says the prayers. What prayers are they probably talking about? Probably the Psalms. Probably the, the prayers that Jesus taught, but also the Psalms. There was this understanding, oh, we can have liturgy. Like how, part of how we learn how to talk to God is we read other people's prayers. We read other people's liturgy to help us learn language for dealing with God ourselves. So the early Christians, they borrowed from their Jewish roots. They also borrowed from Greco-Romans. I mean, a sermon was a lot more like a philosophical teaching than what a typical rabbi would have done. A lot of their attire they developed was much more Roman than Jewish. But they used liturgy and creeds and prayers. They gave structure. By giving structure, they end up helping people worship. That was the whole goal. But it was the packaging. Everybody see what I'm saying? Now, another bonus word for you. Last one, guys. Okay. What do we call that ritual and all those the combination that they, that they put together? A worship service. We call this a service. This is a church service. How many of you have used that term? You've heard of that term? Church service. Church service. Worship service. Yeah, but I, I want you to be clear. When we use the term that this is a service, who are we serving? God. Jesus, in particular, Jesus. Yes, this is so important. I heard a story uh, about, uh, about uh, Francis Chan. He's a pastor. Uh, some of you have read some of his stuff or used some of his Sunday school curriculum. There was one time when Francis Chan had somebody come up to him after church, and they said, Pastor Chan, I did not really like worship today. And Pastor Chan responded, well, that's okay. We weren't worshiping you. But let that sink in for a minute. This is all packaging. Bells, choir, hymns, praise song, sermon, pews. This is packaging. What is actually worship is what your heart does with God. Okay, When you are sacrificing yourself. And so this service is not about you. And it's not about me. It's about God. Okay? And there are plenty of people that can go to church and go through all of these service, but never actually offer themselves at all to God. And that's what this is actually about.
We're not here to worship you. We're not here to worship me. We're not here to worship our preferences. We're not here to worship our comfort. We're not here to worship this space. We're not here to worship the past. We're not here to worship the future. And if you're worshiping any of those other things, the Bible has a word for that. It's called idolatry. When you worship something that you prop up in the place of God, it's called idolatry. And the Bible's pretty clear on that one. Don't do that. And yet so much of our lives, we actually sacrifice to, we actually give our hearts to, we give our energy to, we give our time to so many things that are not God. Everybody, that's idolatry. The service isn't an offering to you, it's an offering to God. It means we are not consumers of worship. We are givers of worship. So here's the question. Did you prepare your heart today when you came into this sanctuary to give your worship to God? Or did you come here as a consumer? As in, you know, entertain me kind of? No. Did you prepare your hearts and minds to give to God? We give to God here. Of course we're changed in the middle of it. Because when you come close to God's presence, that's what's going to happen. You're going to get shaped. You're going to get changed. But yeah, maybe bells aren't your thing. Maybe you love the bells. Maybe sermons are okay. Maybe some people like liturgy and like to really speak somebody else's words. Somebody else doesn't like. All right. First of all, you're not the only person here. And second of all, it's really not about serving you. And part of what you have to do and I have to do is prepare my heart, prepare my mind to worship God in all of it. Even the parts that don't fit me as well. That's okay. Because worship's about God. And here's why this is so important. Okay, back, back to, we, we're in this setting sail service, uh, a sermon series. I haven't said anything about sailing in the sermon, but here, here's the metaphor. I believe that worship is the rudder of the ship. Yeah, I believe worship is the rudder of the church. If you know anything about ships, you can have a giant ship. Giant ships turn on very small rudders. Okay, you get a really big ship, there's two rudders. They're really not that big. And if you actually know much about rudders, you know that most of the weight on a rudder doesn't get spread evenly across the rudder. There's an edge of a rudder. It's called a trim tab. It's where most of the pressure of turning. So so you can say like this giant Queen Mary ship turns on a little rudder. And most of that weight goes on the little edge on the outside of the rudder. And I'm telling you, worship is the rudder of the church. How worship goes is how church goes. And I am not talking about music and liturgy and style and location. What changes a church, what turns a church, what guides a church through the waters of this life, what will guide your life through the waters of this life is if your heart is actually worshiping, if you're actually serving sacrifices and going into God's presence. That's why I love this imagery of a doorway. Because when you start to get this right, it leads you somewhere. Closer to God and closer to God's plans for your life. So my challenge to you is when you come to worship, when you come to worship, prepare your hearts and minds. Not to receive worship, but to give worship. And also, see this as practice. Okay, this is practice. This is, this is purposefully set up with all these structures and rituals, right? Because it's easier to worship God here than it is on Wednesday morning at work when you don't want to be there. But actually, worship can be done all the time. I end with this verse. 
One of my life verses, Romans 12. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Live your life as a life of worship. And may this place be a place where we practice that. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.